Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. Of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that courtesy check that mobile devices have been silenced or turned off as we begin. And of course, for those watching online, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time, simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion this morning is Walter Lohman, director of our Asian Studies Center. He also serves as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University, where he leads graduate seminars on American foreign policy interests in both Southeast Asia and the role of Congress in Asia policy. Prior to joining us here at Heritage, he served as senior vice president and executive director of the U.S. ASEAN Business Council, and he had previously served them as their senior country director representing American interest in Indonesia and Singapore. He has also served on as a senior professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Please join me in welcoming Walter Lohman. Walter, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out today, um, and, and thank you to uh, Observer Research Foundation for being here and for partnering with Heritage Foundation once again uh, on a program of interest to U.S.-India relations. You know, a year ago we had a very similar program here at Heritage, again, partnering with ORF. Um, at that time, we were, in fact, talking about a longer-term project um, to focus on U.S.-India relations and how it relates to uh, Indo-Pacific and, and strategy there. And I'm proud to report that that has resulted in this report that you found out, out front, uh, the new India-U.S. partnership in the Indo-Pacific Peace, Prosperity, and Security. Um, so true to our word, we followed through on uh, some of our big plans, and, and I'm sure we will have uh, many more parts of this uh, long, uh, long-running long priority uh, to come. Uh, last time we met, we, we very much keyed off of the uh, 2015 meeting that President Obama and Prime Minister Modi had and their, their joint statement at the time. That was sort of the context for our meeting uh, and for our discussion. Uh, since then, of course, we've heard from this administration, the U.S., about free and open Indo-Pacific. And... Um, and so that really, I think, shapes the context for our, our discussion today, this new vision, at least on the U.S. side. And I hope we can get involved in that uh, today, uh, get, get, uh, get that as a major part of our conversation here. Uh, as for how we proceed with the program today, uh, first I'm going to turn it over to our friends from uh, ORF, uh, first chairman of ORF's Board of Trustees, Sanjoy Joshi. Uh, Sanjoy has been here before. This is at least the third time I think you've been on this stage, probably probably others. He, he's new at least seven months out from his role as chairman, but he's been here as director before with, uh, with ORF. Uh, Sanjoy spent 25 years in the Indian Administrative Service, 
uh, before joining ORF in 2007. In the Indian Administrative, Administrative Service, among other things, he handled oil and gas exploration as Joint Secretary in the Ministry of Petroleum and Natural Gas, and many other things, but it would take me way too long to go through that extensive career. Uh, then we'll turn it over to uh, Samir Saran. Uh, Samir is a new president of ORF. He's been at ORF for about 10 years, uh, most recently as vice president for outreach and business development, where I think most of Washington got to know him. And I do mean most of Washington got to know mm -hmm. Samir at that time. He was very effective in that job in the outreach role. Um, and I imagine that's probably has something to do with why he's now president of ORF. Uh, finally, we're going to wind up with Jeff Smith. Uh, Jeff um, was a part of this program, this discussion we had a year ago, uh, but his title since then has changed. Last year, he was with the American Foreign Policy Council, where he was director of their Asia Security Program. Um, he was there for some 10 years as well. Um, now he's a research fellow here at Heritage Foundation focused on South Asia. Uh, by the way, Jeff has a book coming out this summer. I should give a quick plug for that. Asia's quest for balance, uh, looking uh, really in uh, large measure at the region's reaction to uh, China's rise and, and, and how to deal with that. Okay, so with that, let me turn it over to Joshi and he can, um, uh, Sanjoy and he can get started. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Walter. It's always a pleasure being uh, at the Heritage. And this association between ORF and Heritage is, this goes back as long as my time at ORF, which is also about 10 years now. Oh, oh there you go. Yeah, I think we both of us turned up at the same time. <laughs> a little six months after me, I think Sami turned up, right. something like that. Uh, so it's lovely being here, and uh, I've enjoyed working uh, with Heritage on all these projects which we have been doing, and this last one was a special delight. Uh, coming to today's subject, let's jump straight into it. I you know, tend to take a more uh, kind of stratospheric view of uh, the partnership of the relationship between India and the U.S. And my belief has always been that uh, the logic of larger economic trajectories, geopolitical shifts, overreach individuals and outlast them. And and that is the way, uh, that is the context I would like to place the India-U.S. relationship in. Individuals are very important. Uh, they lend a distinct flavor, a flavor as important as chicken tikka masala. So, you know, that is, but that flavor is very, very important. But the fact is that, you know, this is, uh, as far as this partnership is concerned, uh, it is, I think, important to look beyond the headlines of the moment and figure out the convergences and divergences uh, in a relationship that is destined to, you know, last not just a matter of uh, a few years, but you're talking of several decades gone and several decades into the future. And that is how we would like to contextualize it. Uh, it is, I think, a partnership that falls into place looking at both countries' uh, economic trajectory, their political values, very importantly, and the evolving strategic posture, which we have seen develop over time. And yes, uh, you spoke about the Indo-Pacific. The Indo-Pacific is an area where ORF and Heritage have been producing a lot of work together. The Indo-Pacific is the theater in which this partnership is being played out. Uh, but that is not to say that, uh, you know, this is a relationship which is concerned about maintaining just the regional balance of power. It is, it is beyond that. It is about uh, two countries 
acting in concert with like-minded powers, having a stake in enabling and maintaining uh, a peaceful, prosperous, productive Asia-Pacific uh, for all countries, and ensuring that these countries align their desire to see a free and fair regional architecture emerge. Now, that is ultimately the bedrock of this partnership. So, first of all, you know, by now it is fairly evident that uh, President Trump's America First agenda uh, it should be very clear by no means really meant that the U.S. would become a reluctant power in the region. You know, people who were imagining them were very, very wrong. The very logic of America First necessitated, and we've seen it happen, it necessitated a greater rather than a lesser engagement. And as a recent piece by one of my colleagues, uh, Gautam, just points out, uh, we have seen uh, three key resets take place in the region because of U.S. policy. The first is the reset unfolding in North Korea, very dramatic, a huge shift. The second is the reset between India and China, which just concluded uh, with the informal summit between President Xi and Prime Minister Modi. Uh, this was, again, something which turned up this year. And the third reset, which is yet to take place, an important reset, will be the reset between India and Pakistan. See, logically, it should, it should be obvious, and it is obvious that uh, how can the U.S. disengage from a region, especially at a time when the contests in the region are irrevocably moving across the Indo-Pacific, you know, closer and closer to the United States' own spheres of influence that has been happening. They're moving westward across the, uh, across the landmass of Asia, encroaching upon its geophysical space and its very geophysical identity. And these shifts are taking place. So maybe the time has now come to also, looking forward, remove the strategic aberration that has tended to treat South Asia and Southeast Asia as two universes apart. Now, an aberration whereby not only strategic uh, planners and uh, diplomatic desks of various countries, but following the lead even academics and think tanks across the US, Japan, Australia have tended to compartmentalize uh, these two parts of the region in two distinct silos, with one having very little understanding of the other. So this is caused a deep mental divide and almost like a schizophrenia where the bureaucracies governing strategy and planning have ensured that this, is, that this divide kind of remain unbreachable with the people on one side treating the other as a black box. Now when we're talking of the script of the future, for the future strategic power play in the region, we finally need to treat South and Southeast Asia as one geopolitical region. And you do that, and you start seeing that the Indo-Pacific engagement cannot stop at the Bay of Bengal. It extends, it has to extend westward across the Arabian Sea to touch the shores of Africa and West Asia. And that the challenges in Southeast and East Asia cannot be divorced of concerns in India's neoliberals across, yes, Bangladesh, Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Maldives, because ultimately it is the Western Indian Ocean where real economic interests lie as far as South Asia is concerned. And for all its saber-rattling, 
in the South China Sea, where China continues to blow hot and cold over Senkaku, over you know other 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 kinds of properties there, or uh, pieces of created landmasses. China too is a country which is definitely focused westward. Its landmass dictates that you no, know, not to do that would be to unleash centrifugal forces within that country, which threaten its very existence. And China does represent a country which is an important economic relationship for all countries in the world, whether it be the US, whether it be India. The significance of China as an economic power, as a regional power, as a, as a global power, you know, cannot, cannot be ignored. Everyone has to face it, confront it, and tackle it, live with it. Now, today we keep talking about connectivity. We keep talking about the BRI. And the BRI is a project that we have to admit, has captured the imagination of many infrastructure-starved countries across Asia as well as Europe. And infrastructure is the need of the hour. And China has crafted this very grand narrative, the promise of a, the great prize of the 21st century, a one that is supposed to father you know, trade, development, prosperity across an economically integrated Asia and Europe. It's, it's, it's a grand vision. So if you know, Turkey aspires to be the hub of the route, build a tunnel to the Bosphorus, Hungary, Serbia, Macedonia, everyone is fascinated by the allure of these lines crisscrossing on the map. And for obvious reasons, once, 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 when we start seeing the entire layout, China is, yes, on a determined march west for reasons which are not very difficult to you know, uh, fathom. Because this entire push westward, where the, where the contest for the Indian Ocean, Africa, Eurasia, are part for the far greater push, which is the push for the soul of Europe. And that is where it is headed. Now, these are larger geopolitical realities. And given the unfolding dynamics, even as both the US and China are compelled to have a complex relationship, uh, US and India are compelled to have a complex relationship with each other and with China, they will need to expand the scope of their engagement along with partners, and it is imperative uh, that the U.S. and India not only confine themselves to discussing India's eastern starboard, but move beyond to include in scope the western expanse of the Indo-Pacific. They need to do it certainly not by themselves, uh, but in conjunctions with allies, with you know lots of their treaties, their rules of the game, and they must work to create this network of treaties and alliances a common understanding of shared norms and values, which are very important, that become the rules of the, of the, of the road for the larger Indo-Pacific. And that is going to be extremely important. For the truth is that even as the BRI is a grand project, true connectivity projects rarely emerge as overarching centrally planned designs. See, that is, that is not the way they grow. They succeed only when they grow organically, they grow from the lives of the people. They grow bottom-up by interlinking very complex nations, communities, subgroups, and several living and breathing subcultures and people who need to come together. This is you know, very much like assembling and building a complex, complicated jigsaw puzzle which consists of a few billion pieces and nothing less than that. And jigsaw puzzles, as you know, cannot be assembled using a bulldozer. They need to be crafted patiently, bit by bit, piece by piece, by
by teams working in trust, for eventually regional integration is a matter of trust. So at a time when the world enters a new phase of one could you know, inevitably be some of the most disruptive technology-led transitions, which happen across Asia and Africa, which uh, you know, present some of the fastest-growing regions uh, as far as uh, the, new, uh, the new age technologies are concerned. There will be a whole new host of new users coming in, in digital technologies, and that digital connectivity, the digital architecture, is the digital governance is a very important part of the connectivity which we are talking about. So there are debates today taking place on the unprecedented nature of cyber threats, when the normative foundations of the internet today are under question, are being debated. Can countries like the US India now come together in this new emerging world for a partnership in the digital sphere, which is firmly within the economic and developmental remit of the regional strategic calculus? So the possibilities as far as India-US partnership exists in several spheres, I would say they are rather endless and encompass hard infrastructure, knowledge clusters, digital connectivity, you know, the new kinds of value chains which are going to be created uh, from Palo Alto to Bengaluru, Tokyo, Tel Aviv, uh, encompassing the whole area. And for all these connectivity projects where it is hard or soft connectivity, finance options that are unviable in the long run because the investment motives that lead them are questionable can only end up compromising local autonomy. And we are seeing that happen. We're seeing that happen in Sri Lanka. We're seeing that happen in Pakistan. So a common framework must find ways of integrating all and several bottom-up initiatives to explore sustainable and innovative ways to fulfill Asia's aspirations for infrastructure, employment, economic opportunities, rather than just tie countries down to binding commitments around finance and repayment of debt. And to do that, you know, you, once we start thinking of this, then you start adding, besides the finance options, uh, some very dubious environmental and human rights records. Um, and the answer is fairly obvious to all parties, and including China. The only way forward is a rules-based order. And that is the foundation of trust. That simultaneously, equitably, equally, and inclusively benefits all. And that is where countries like the US and India with like-minded partners, must ensure this. So the fundamental building blocks that, these are the fundamental building blocks that only can promote a connectivity across all spheres, over land, over sea, across the digital domain, and most importantly, across hearts and minds. And this is the partnership that can do it. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Sunjay. You always manage to stretch my brain a little bit to, to, to start out. That's very, very good. Um, before we move on, if I could just ask you uh, one thing that you alluded to. I'm, I'm glad you talked about um, China and its significance and its uh, continuing uh, impact and importance and need to, to be taken account of, uh, because I think that there's a certain way of looking at the Indo-Pacific, the approach to the Indo-Pacific in Washington anyway, that is sometimes a little bit too simple. That is, it's too much focused on, uh, you know, billiard balls balancing off the Chinese um, and sort of recruiting these sort of major powers to to deal with the challenge. And, and, you know, at some point, the U.S. 
even getting in the business of sort of corralling our friends and partners into a grander strategy vis-a-vis China, which I think for the reasons that you referenced is, uh, is not likely. That is, it's going to be very difficult to get countries, even in Western Europe, even, even the Japanese, as concerned as the Japanese are, because there's so many other interests involved. So uh, that's just a preface to ask if you could clarify what you mentioned in terms of the reset with India-China relations, because I assume that you're evoking some of the same dynamics there. Uh, precisely, you see, uh, and it's, uh, I would say that, uh, U.S. policies in the region, what we've seen happen, uh, over the last six months to one year, have actually caused the reset to take place. They have led to both China and India starting to talk to each other and start, starting at least to make the attempt to get back. There, there was a series of setbacks, uh, you know, Doklam happened, lots of other things happened. But, as the regional balance or the rebalance started playing out, and that is where I keep talking about strategic larger geopolitical shifts, which are larger than individuals and nations, which are, which are dictated by the logic of where they happen to be placed in the, in the context. Uh, this has caused, and this is causing, you know, first of all, see what happened in North Korea. It was completely unexpected. I mean, there were, a few months ago, six months ago, seven months ago, you know, there were, there were air raid sirens going over off in Hawaii. And Guam was under threat. That was an accident. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Guam was under, but, 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 but look at the, uh, at the kind of, uh, the psyche which prevailed. If, if, if you read the headlines of that point of time. And, you know, it, it was extremely clear. And today there is a very different kind of scenario prevailing. There is, there is optimism. Some would say guarded optimism. There is definite optimism. And in Delhi about uh, India-China relations? No, no. I'm talking about North Korea. Oh, oh okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. North Korea vis-a-vis... Right, yes. Uh, where, where China was placed vis-a-vis North Korea and, and a certain whittling down of China's role in the region. Uh, Japanese. I, I happened to be in Tokyo on the 9th of March. It was the 10th of March there. Mm-hmm. And we were specifically assembled there to discuss the problem of North Korea. And then this delegation, this, uh, this conversation takes place, this announcement from the lawns of the White House on, you know, this summit taking place in May between Kim Jong-un and President Trump. And suddenly everything changes in Japan. There, you know, there, there's, a, there's a very different flavor. There's a lot of anxiety. So conversation starts happening between various countries then in the region because these are the larger realities. And the, uh, all these countries, right, you say Japan does look at China in a particular way. India will look at China in a particular way. And China also looks at all its neighbors also as you know, part of the larger architecture of the region. No one can ignore each other. Mm-hmm. So these resets, yes, will happen. But within these resets, uh, if you look at the larger motivations of countries, where it is headed, they're the kind of framework which I have placed out mm-hmm. of where core interests lie, you know, where the push is, what, what, is, what is happening across Europe. Mm-hmm. What what is happening across uh, West Asia, Africa? That becomes important, and we must keep that in mind when we frame the U.S.-India partnership. I'd like to come back later to this issue of the mood in India or in Delhi, particularly about about China. But I want to give uh, Samir let me let me take that, that microphone. Let me take that head on because <laughs> okay. I know Walter wanted a reply. <laughs> he was <laughs> trying to apply his uh, 
uh, a certain response from Sanjoy, which I will offer him. Uh, so, so you know, uh, uh, I I want to structure my presentation on uh, on three lines. Uh, one is uh, what I uh, borrow or plagiarize from uh, the internet: the revenge of of uh, geography, uh, which is, I think, Robert Kaplan's book, if I remember correctly. Uh, I add something called the revenge of democracy, which is something that's happening in the U.S. and Europe, and maybe even in India. And the third is uh, what I would call uh, uh, the revenge of demography, what uh, the youth and young populations and old and aging populations do to our politics in many parts of the world. So I think you have three distinct um, uh, factors which are currently shaping the discussions around the Indo-Pacific, which is not necessarily, as Sanjay elaborated, a conversation on the Indo-Pacific, but rather on the future of the liberal order, the rules-based order, global governance itself. And I think that's the big question. Indo-Pacific is just a, a, a sexy conversation on this much broader question of our times, which is who manages the world, how is it managed, how plural or democratic it is going to be, what are the stakeholders' interests, etc., that need to be accommodated. And I think that's the big question we are having, a big conversation we are having here. But before that, let me answer Walter's... Uh, uh, so, sitting in New Delhi, uh, if you were to ask an expert, uh, what do you think is that you want from your relationship with China? I think that's a fair question to ask. What is it that India seeks from China? And I think you would hear the same reply from a Chinese, from an Indian uh, senior diplomat or a, a pol political leader that you would hear in Europe and America. What do you want from China? I think the answer is quite simple. How do you ensure that you can partner with China's growing economic clout for your own benefit? How can you benefit from China's rise? How can you seek Chinese surpluses to build your infrastructure? How can you get Chinese to engage with you in terms of economic, economy and trade on terms that, uh, that, uh, that help you grow your own economy and, and benefit your own people? While at the same time, how do you push back and manage Chinese military and political expansionism? I think that's the challenge that India faces. And that's the challenge that Europe faces. And that's the challenge that the U.S. is trying to respond to over the last five, seven years. So sitting in New Delhi, I don't think we have any different take on China than you would have sitting in, in D.C. or sitting in Brussels. And, and, and Wuhan is exactly that. Wuhan is a way to fulfill uh, India's twin objectives with China, uh, a closer economic embrace, and, uh, uh, and um, at the same time maintaining a strict political posture. So Wuhan, since the political posture had been on mighty display during 2017, Wuhan was a way of, of uh, in a sense, lowering the temperature and um, preparing the grounds for three, for three important summits that are uh, ahead of us at the SEO, where we certainly don't want to be the odd one in the room with the Russians, Chinese, Pakistanis, and everyone ganging up on us. Um, the, the NDB, the BRICS summit, where uh, we have started dispersing loans from the BRICS Development Bank. And, of course, India is a key beneficiary of both the New Development Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that the Chinese manage. Uh, and how do you ensure that those flows of project finance keeps, uh, keeps coming in? We don't want to upset that particular uh, 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 proposition. And, of course, the bilateral summit later in the year between the two leaders again. So I think Wuhan was a way to lower down and ratchet down the temperature. It was tactical. It was desired by both sides. I don't think it was an India-led initiative. I think both countries wanted a degree of normalcy. Uh, I think uh, uh, both have realized that there is a limit to partnership and a limit to contest. 
and I think we have we have arrived at both of them in the last three years. We can't go closer than this, and we can't go worse off than that uh, without it being really destabilizing for everyone else in the world. So I think our limits of enmity and 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 friendship have been reached in the last three four years. And, and in that sense, I think we both should take uh, notice, uh, learn from that, and work within these boundaries of what is acceptable behavior when it comes to our bilateral relationships. Wuhan was in some ways an attempt to uh, uh, to uh, institutionalize that understanding of uh, of our relationship. Uh, the revenge of um, let me come back to my original three points, and I'll be I'll be quick so that Jeff can come up with the more uh, insightful presentation on on what's really happening on the security defense and other sectors um, in the last few years and lot lot has been happening i mean if you were sitting in 2004 and if you would have um, put down um, the, if you would have suggested that we should be selling armed dr drones to india we should be uh, talking about a security dialogue we should have a quad we should have uh, a certain military to military uh, uh, conversations we should be on the verge of signing the beca and the and the communications agreement we should have a logistics infrastructure sharing agreement people would have said you've been smoking some nice weed in 2004 Delhi, people would, you know, this would have been an uh, improbability. So where we have moved in the last 14 years is astonishing. And I think if there are disappointments in DC and Delhi today, it is because of the lack of ambition or the lack of progress, not the direction of progress and the direction of change. I think we can all be fairly certain that what we have managed to do as two countries in the last 14 years um, and I know Walter has always been a little pessimistic about India not delivering its side of the bargain. But, you know, you, you always believe that we have been reluctant in, in, in committing. But I think that reluctance, even Walter will agree, uh, has reduced by a fair degree in the last four to five years. So if Walter can be satisfied with the relationship, the relationship is on the right track. And that's my Walter Lohman test for, for, for India-US relationship. Uh, so the return of ge uh, geography is a ex very important aspect. And I think Sanjay has elaborated, so I won't really uh, dive deep into it, but I'll frame it in a different way. I think uh, the Chinese are doing what no other power has attempted to do in the last 300 years before the Chinese had done it before, which is to really conceive of, manage, and define Eurasia. I think no one has made such a bold, expansive attempt to connect the Asian and European landmasses like the Chinese are trying to do. The waters are just one instrument the Chinese are using. The Indo-Pacific, the Western Indian Ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, the Arctic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean as it feeds into this debate are all parts, a part of China's larger ambitions of a continental project, Eurasian continental project. So they are reconnecting two distinct uh, continents divided artificially for many, many centuries and they are creating this organic single unit. Now, in that process, uh, in, uh, by design and, uh, of course, by their own appreciation of what the world is, they are paying complete disregard to the sub-regions that exist within it. China does not recognize Southeast Asia. China believes it is as much Southeast Asia as any Southeast Asian country is. China doesn't recognize South Asia. China sees itself as part of that particular conversation. So all the regional balance of power arrangements are being challenged by China because it does not believe that in a continental scale project endeavor that it proposes to 
put together over the next 50, 70, 100, 150 years. And we don't think that long. We think for the next elections in our parts of the world. But the Chinese have shown that they can put the 1,000-piece jigsaw puzzle together simply because long-termism is inbuilt in their system. It may be challenged in the future, and that's the return of demography, which I will, the revenge of demography, which I will come to. But, but as far as the political thinking in China goes, they have those 100 years uh, available to put together the thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and create this continental project which will take which will make china a transatlantic power and that's what we need to start thinking about that when we speak about a transatlantic relationship it is no longer about the us speaking with europe but it's about us speaking with chinese interest in europe it is about us dealing with indian interest in europe it is about us dealing with many other actors in europe so transatlantic relationships are going to be implicated by what's happening in the Indo-Pacific. So that's my first proposition, that the revenge of geography, the, the Chinese ambition to create that new uh, formation, uh, to, to be an influential actor and control the heart of soul of European conversations, European economic trajectory, European politics, their 16 plus 1 arrangement, they are salami slicing Europe. The European Union is under under threat. It is not it is not uh, Putin that they should be worried about. I think Putin is an exaggerated decoy to deflect from the real challenge Europeans face. Europe faces China. Europe is is, is prizing away Greece, Hungary, uh, and many of these. Uh, Poland is 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 a new excited uh, new uh, entrant to the China club. And you know, so uh, my point being that when you when when the Chinese project disregards subregions. India is no longer a regional power in China's view. India is but one actor in Asia. There is no Southeast Asian balance of power as far as China is concerned. They are but five, six countries contributing to the larger Eurasian project. There is no EU that, that China has to abide by its rules or its, its, its political uh, norms. It will decide what it needs to do with its individual constituents because each one is a member of this continental landmass. So, so China is certainly not uh, uh, in contest with a rules-based order, but China's conception of a rules-based order is very different to what evolved over the last uh, 70 years. And none of these rule-based orders are organic or were given by God in the Bible. They were all created by man. Chinese believe that they have the right and they, ha they have the moment to try and redefine many of these arrangements. So I think that's the geographical element and, and the implications to how this landmass is likely to be managed, governed, and the Beijing consensus as it, un as it flows and unfolds uh, across these two areas. On this point, I want to mention that there are two challenges to uh, Indo-US response or Indo-US partnership. As Mr. Joshi alluded to, we have done well when it comes to partnering on the eastern Indian Ocean and on the Western Pacific. We have been, you know, South China Sea and, and the Malabar uh, and the Malacca Straits. And we've been, we've, do, we've done well as, as, uh, as um, Harry Harris, Admiral Harris would have uh, once famously remarked at uh, the Ricina Dialogues, which we host. We have done well between Hollywood to Bollywood, but our partnership has not crossed the borders of Bollywood. We have largely been absent in the Western Indian Ocean, where the real battle is taking place. I have an article this morning for the Lobby Institute where I've spoken about the battle for the soul of the Indian Ocean, which is actually taking place in Djibouti and, <coughs> and Gwadar and, and uh, the Middle East and the, the African literals. And I think the U.S. and India have been slow and reluctant um, and that's I, I, and for me, that's uh, one factor is a political ambition. But the second and most important factor is the bureaucratic arrangements. The Pacific Command and the Central Command could never align 
their operations and see India as their most important partner in that region. I think the fact that the Indians are now placing someone in Bahrain begins to change that. And I think India must place a military attache in every American outpost in that particular region. And I think that will change the way the central command responds to India. And perhaps we could have a cohesive conversation in responding to a continental proposition that the Chinese have placed. We can't respond to a Chinese proposition piecemeal if we need to respond to the Eurasian proposition and the Eurasian project that China has placed on the table. We need a Eurasian response as well. So I think the India-US will have to do more together. And this is probably, uh, Walter, a next paper we could be thinking about on on, on how can a Eurasian strategy emerge uh, between India and, and the U.S., which begins to not only help other African and Asian countries in terms of their infrastructure and economic needs, but also begins to save some of the European countries who are also seeking uh, the Chinese goodies on offer. So I think a Eurasian strategy uh, uh, to respond to this geographical undertaking is important. The second is the revenge of democracy. Now, even as the Chinese are relentless uh, and, and and believe you me, I admire them for this. So this is, I think, the, the, uh, there is something admirable about the way in which the Chinese have persevered with with putting together this project. They have they have held on to the line. They have taken a few blows. They have lost some money. They have had to uh, invest in white elephants. Uh, they have invested in failed regimes. Many of their money, uh, many most of many of the countries where they have put money don't really like them. And you know they have seen this this ebb and flow of, of uh, geoeconomics and geopolitics, but they have persevered. And, and eventually, I believe, unless an alternative proposition can be put on the table, they are likely to succeed. I don't think the Belt and Road Initiative is going to fail because of its inherent weaknesses. I think the Belt and Road Initiative is likely to succeed. Um, and the only way it can be managed is if there is a counter proposition on the table. And our report uh, speaks about that. It speaks on how there must be a liberal proposition where, where money for infrastructure, for growth, for development, and for, for peoples and communities to prosper can also be on offer. And can India, Japan, US, European Union... Uh, put together such an initiative. So democracy in our countries uh, has led to a situation where we are a deeply divided lot. Our leadership, our political leadership has no place for long-term thinking. You go to the US, you go to key capitals in Europe, you go to India, it is impossible to have a sensible conversation anymore. Everything is polarized, everything is divided, there is no space offered to the leaders to create, conduct foreign policy. Every foreign policy has now become a domestic debate. Leaders are criticized. The Wuhan debate, the Congress politicized it. If the, if the Congress was on, on top, the BJP would have done it. There is absolutely no quarter given. Foreign policy was meant to be high policy making space offered to uh, elected representatives of the country. That assumption is over. Democracy has destroyed uh, the ability of institutions to conduct long-term uh, and strategic, uh, uh, to, to, to plan long-term strategic roadmaps. And I think democracy is beginning to impact the way we can respond to any new proposition. And I think that is something we must understand. We are a deeply divided societies, deeply divided societies, polarized and, and incapable of creating cohesive narratives that can respond to something as uh, 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 pervasive as uh, the Chinese proposition today is. And we must think about it because unless we really think about this, we are not going to be able to put together anything that can respond to it. And finally, let me touch on demography. And I think this is the good news and the bad news. Uh, the, uh, let me start with the good news first. I think the good news is that uh, 
some of China's own own assumptions around being managed uh, around being able to create this national collective con- you know consensus on investing uh, in these kind of projects which may not be able to give returns all the time may be challenged i think as chinese move from low income to mid income to high income uh, i i wonder how would uh, uh, their collective consciousness be affected you know chinese b- believe we think as society we we act as 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 a, as a whole single unit and i think that is going to be challenged as uh, as more people uh, break free from the lower income uh, 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 strata and move to higher income and seek self actualization and get more connected more global have interests all over the world so at one level um, uh, um, a young um, a, a demography in asia makes asia more nationalistic more more inward looking uh, but a young demography which is suddenly given more money also makes it more selfish making uh, uh, this this uh, ability of certain nations to mobilize all of them towards one direction difficult so asia is going through this this phase uh, of youth where nationalism and and uh, uh, nuclearization of thinking is happening at the same time and at some point one of these two trends is likely to succeed and and uh, the good news is that i suspect nuclearization or individual thinking is likely to be the new dominant thread and therefore to be able to mobilize people um, and go them into one single direction may be difficult for more countries and i believe china will be no exception chinese society will also demand certain degree of response from their own governments for their own benefits and what does that do to this big project over the next 10 years because bri is not a 5 year 7 year undertaking it is a decadal project with multiple decades of investments and and, and attention and and therefore bri itself they become a far more democratic process and a democratic project like mr joshi mentioned more more organic more more based on the success of that individual unit rather than uh, some grand scheme that is being um, uh, stitched together uh, and that's something i think it's important for us as well in our own circumstances in us and europe and and, and uh, asia and india we have seen how democracy has also implicated our own politics you know brexit is an example of of of, of that demography you know old people versus the youth and i think you could see that play out where you have more old people you have different responses uh, emerging and i think how that plays out in our own politics is extremely important as well and therefore this is again a question that all of us uh, must respond to so let me end here but by putting forward one single thought for all of us to think about uh, can the india us partnership uh, escape or rather uh, use the indo pacific as the basis of a much larger eurasian conversation or rather can we escape our limited focus to the waters of asia and start thinking about the continents that are being connected by uh, the belt and road or by the chinese project that was terrific thank you um a lot of things there i want to come back to but we can do that <laughs> later let me turn it over to jeff i'll keep the remarks quick so that we do have time to come back to that and we do have time for Q&A those are two tough acts to follow and i want to take a minute to congratulate our partners from ORF on their recent promotions and also to um just observe when i started going to india 10 years ago the think tank space there was underdeveloped to be charitable and what uh, samir and sanjoy have done at ORF in the last few years is really remarkable 
Um, I think they've helped develop ORF into a world-class think tank that's able to put on world-class international conferences, very sophisticated endeavors, very costly and sophisticated endeavors. But anybody who's been to the Ricina Dialogue in recent years or some of their programs uh, knows that they are now competing in this space with sort of the elite think tanks here in America and elsewhere. So big congrats to them. And that's very important for a country still developing a strategic culture and realizing its ambitions to be more active on the global stage and having these sophisticated, important dialogues on foreign and domestic policies. It's a great service that they provide. Um, Having said that, I think I want to key off on a point that Samir made at the beginning about the Wuhan summit because this has been in the headlines and there has been some – to maybe inexperienced commentary uh, suggesting that maybe this signals some kind of major rebalancing from India, that maybe the health of the U.S.-India relationship is in doubt or that it's making a major turn toward China. And I just think that that's not borne out by the facts. Uh, I think the health of the U.S.-India relations are very sound. And I think the Wuhan summit, more than anything else, was an attempt to reset the tone of China-India relations. Um, which is rather consistent with the natural ebb and flow of, of China-India relations for, for many years, if not decades now. But none of the substantive issues, there's been no change either in the many disputes that divide the two countries or in advancing any positive new vision or framework or major initiative that's going to alter the facts on the ground. Um, it was a, a change in tone. Um, there's still important differences over the Belt and Road, uh, something that will have to be navigated at the SEO summit coming up. Uh, the situation at Doklam is still very much unresolved. Uh, this it, it was a disengagement, what happened last year. There's still significant amount of forces uh, on both sides in relatively close proximity. I think the situation is stable, um, but it is an unresolved dispute, and it was an unprecedented situation at Dokum last year. I think it's notable, too, that um, India's uh, rec- the recorded border incursions by Chinese patrols at the Indian border last year uh, were up significantly over 2016. I think there were 273 reported in 2016 and 426 reported last year. These are much more minor incidents than happened at Doklam, but it's a reminder that that unresolved border dispute uh, still remains a serious issue in, in China-India relations. And the neighborhood competition, which is really the major new layer of rivalry, the new layer of competition in China-India relations. You know, they had – there was enough sort of mistrust uh, before this new layer, but since the mid-2000s, China's growing influence and presence in places like Nepal, Sri Lanka, the Maldives, uh, and Bhutan – has uh, added a a competitive new element and I think has fed a sense of encirclement to some degree in Delhi that I find understandable. Um, So there are are major issues there that have yet to be resolved, but I think both sides wanted to put relations on a more stable footing, and I think they were largely successful in doing so. Uh, The U.S.-India relationship, on the other hand, I think – does remain in a state of, of good health. Uh, the, the, the big picture items, I, first of all, I think President Trump has been rather consistent 
uh, in his approach to India, even on the campaign trail. It was one of the few countries that uh, he spoke almost overwhelmingly positive about. There were very few negative statements about India during the political campaign and since he's been president, frankly. Um, there do remain some issues on the economic side and on the trade front that will have to be resolved, but those are not new. Uh, there have been concerns, particularly on Capitol Hill, about some aspects of the trade relationship that have been ongoing for years. But there are differences that two sides can, I think, work out in a friendly, cooperative manner. On the security and defense side, which is something I certainly pay more attention to, I think that the news has been better uh, Samir mentioned some of the recent points, but there was an approval to sell armed drones to India, which was made recently. This is something that's been on India's wish list for some time. Indian officials are actually in Washington today uh, for two-day discussion on signing the remaining two foundational agreements, SISMOA and BECA. Uh, if there is progress on these, there was already progress on the first foundational agreement, a logistics exchange memorandum. Um, these are in some ways, the fundamental core of a defense relationship. Progress on these is very significant, um, much more important than some of the cosmetic issues that you see bandied about in the headlines on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, behind the scenes, work on these important issues continues. We also just held a maritime security dialogue in Goa. We have a trilateral working group on infrastructure that's going between the U.S., India, and Japan. Um, I'm glad Samir mentioned that uh, India will now be stationing an attache at CENTCOM. This is also something that Delhi has been requesting for some time, which will help our two countries to engage more on defense issues as they relate to the Western Indian Ocean, as they relate to the Middle East, and of course, as they relate to Pakistan. This is another issue I think President Trump has uh, moved in the right direction on Pakistan and has done th some things that I have been recommending for many, many years now, um, including extra sanctions uh, on Pakistani-based militants, including militants that have traditionally focused on India, like Lashkar-e-Taiba. Um, aid to Pakistan, as anybody who follows the issue knows, has been significantly curtailed this year. Uh, the Trump administration worked to have Pakistan graylisted at um, the FATF and has been added to a religious freedom watch list. And the Trump administration is also working to build and uh, revive some of the alternative logistics routes into Afghanistan. This has been a sort of major point of leverage that Pakistan has held over uh, the U.S. war effort in Afghanistan, that most of the supplies that come into Afghanistan go through two ground routes through Pakistan. And there's been some concern that a rift in, in bilateral relations could result in Islamabad cutting off some of these supply routes. We certainly aren't there yet, but I think it's wise for the Trump administration to begin exploring uh, alternative options, whether they be through air supply or reviving some of the uh, NDN through Central Asia. Uh, so... I am a little puzzled when I hear some grumbling and some doubts about the health of U.S.-India relations. I think the fundamentals remain very, very sound and very strong, and we are moving in the right direction. Um, we do have some hurdles to navigate. Uh, some of you may be familiar with CATSA, which is a piece of legislation that would apply sanctions to countries doing uh, defense trade with Russia. Uh, and there is the potential for India to get caught up in some of these sanctions. And some of us are working to find out 
how best to potentially navigate uh, those sanctions moving forward. There's also um, cooperation ongoing on, on the Belt and Road Initiative and how can the United States and India and, and Japan, frankly, uh, do more to make sure that there are alternatives provided to countries who are seeking investments in infrastructure but don't necessarily want um, some of the strings that are attached to Chinese investments, that don't want some of the risks of debt traps, of, of equity stakes, of the security implications of investments in some sensitive industries. Um, I think it's very important that the quadrilateral dialogue was revived at the end of last year, and I, I do hope that there, you know, obviously there's been some turnover in the U.S. administration here, which has delayed our 2 plus 2 dialogue, uh, which now I believe uh, the U.S.-India 2 plus 2 will be held later this month. Um, I'm also hoping that we can get the next session of the Quad back on the schedule soon. Um, and then maybe lastly is the uh, Malabar exercises, which uh, will be held in June this year, and they'll be held off the coast of um, off the coast of Guam, if I'm not mistaken, which may be the first time uh, that that's happened for Malabar. This was a U.S.-India bilateral naval exercise for many years that Japan joined as a permanent member in 2015. And these exercises have been growing more sophisticated. Last year, I think uh, the U.S., India, and Japan each had an aircraft carrier participate for the first time. Uh, looks like we're looking at new venues uh, off, the, off the coast of Guam, I believe would be new. And we've been urging our friends to uh, consider <laughs> the inclusion of our, our, our cousins in Australia uh, in the Malabar exercises, a sensitive point now for some time. But I'm sure with a little bit more ribbing and convincing that our Indian friends will come around to this idea in the near future. Um, but I'm hopeful uh, over, if you look at this relationship over the long term, over the long sweep of history, if you look at the fundamentals, I think it gives you a lot of reason for optimism. Our shared challenges are not going away. And I think our, the issues that bring us together are, are growing stronger. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I want to open it up to questions. Um, while you all think about those, uh, just for a moment, let me let me follow up with one commenting question here uh, to begin. Um, you know, the, the, I think it's very much as uh, Sunjoy laid out that so much of the way you look at this problem <clears throat> depends on where you sit, right? Even for a country the size of the United States that is engaged in, you know, global struggles uh, over the 20, uh, 20th century uh, still depends on where you sit. And, uh, and, and Samir um, lays out a very compelling sort of geostrategic picture that we need to respond to, that is this Chinese effort to create a common geostrategic uh, picture for, uh, for the Eurasian continent. Uh, but it seems like to me it is very much Indian perspective, because of where you sit. You're looking west and you're looking east, right? From the U.S. perspective, the region, the whole idea of the Indo-Pacific is mostly about the Pacific. It's not so much about the Indian Ocean. And so when you do stretch it all the way to Africa, I think from an American perspective, it begins to lose some of its coherence. Like, what does it matter? Um, on the other hand, if you're looking at it from India's perspective, you look at the way you... Uh, laid it out, that is this common uh, Chinese effort vis-a-vis -vis the Eurasian landmass, 
then how does what India is doing in the Pacific fit into that picture? Uh, you know, the, 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 the um, Malabar exercises or the port calls, the relationship with Vietnam, all the rest, doesn't seem to fit in with this uh, response to the broader problem. So, uh, Walter, I mean, to me, the Pacific was where we both agreed to shake hands. But I don't believe our relationship is restricted to the waters. I think that is, it is like the Bandung conference. It was Bandung where we met. It doesn't mean that the global development agenda restricted itself to developing Bandung. So I think the Indo-Pacific is the point of departure for a global partnership that we must start. And, and I'm not someone who's fussed about titles and nomenclature. But I think the spirit of everything that Obama and our prime minister spoke about and Trump and uh, the current administration has in a sense explicitly stated at different parts at different times is quite clear that there is a realization in D.C. and India that they have to do more together in the world. Now, Indo-Pacific happens to be the, uh, the epicenter where our relationship was forged. But it certainly does not either define the scope of where we must, what we must carve together, or the challenge that we must respond to. Mm-hmm. And 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 to me, uh, uh, if we were to restrict ourselves to the Pacific, all we would be saving would be the fish, the 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 real battle for 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 for, for people, um, for uh, power and for for political influence is unfortunately not in the waters of Guam or or Hawaii. You know, they are really in in the Eurasian landmass. That is where the wealth, eighteen trillion dollars of of European wealth and add all the countries in between and then the Chinese and you have a $40 trillion continent. Now, that is what is up for stake. It's a $40 trillion geography that we are deciding to... Now, sitting in India, uh, I could be more narrow and I could decide to uh, take a leaf out of my American cousin's book and I could say it's all about South Asia. But actually, it is not. The fact is that the Chinese don't... Uh, don't you know, when people ask me, why is China not treating us? With, with the degree of respect, because they don't really care about your two and a half trillion dollar economy. They are looking at a forty trillion dollar project. Why would a two and a half trillion? Why would they allow a country with a two and a half trillion dollar economy to veto that? Now, it becomes extremely, uh, uh, you know, the, the game changes when, in say uh, seven years' time, we are a five trillion dollar economy, or in fifteen, seventeen years, we are hitting the ten trillion dollar mark, and then we start becoming an, uh, a, a significant part of any Chinese plan. But at two and a half trillion dollars. We are certainly not going to be in a position to veto uh, the larger Chinese ambition to capture uh, a, a serious segment of the European markets to influence the development of Central Asia and Central Europe to be an actor in Eastern Europe and, and Africa. So uh, to, to answer your question, if America wants to consign or if America believes consigning the partnership to uh, the, the Southeast Asian uh, uh, question is the future of this ambition, then I don't think we have heard that from the leaders in the last five years. Mm-hmm. We have heard a much larger vision come out. Mm-hmm. And, and and either they must tell us that that vision that was falsehood and we should restrict ourselves to port calls and, and Malabar exercises, or we should live the, we should walk the talk with states, India, Africa, that India and US in Africa, India and US in, in infrastructure development, India, US, Japan to create a liberal uh, alternative. You know, we so the Indo-Pacific is the point of departure, not our uh, final destination. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with you about the um, global nature of the partnership, that we have to be looking at a much bigger picture. Um, I guess I'm just trying to understand <coughs> how you get there from here, you know, because the epicenter of U.S. power is in the Western Pacific. And, and, uh, and that also is where the epicenter of our of our interests are uh, to a large degree. So uh, it's a matter of focus. 
you know, if we focus on this Eurasian problem, which I, I buy it, you know, especially you talked about Europe. We've been focusing ourselves a lot on that lately about understanding where the Europeans are looking at this issue. So I see that priority. But if we're focused on that, we're going to lose um, lose sight of what's going on in the Pacific. And we're certainly going to lose a priority in bringing India more into the equation. You know, see, uh, 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 Walter, I agree that you have an uh, important fact on – you have an important issue around the capacity constraints with both of our capitals face in some ways to be able to do too many things at the same time. Uh, and it is a shame because the Chinese seem to be able to do that better. They are able to focus on the Indo-Pacific and on U Europe at the same time. So I think we have to get our act together. I, I don't think we should allow that to to uh, restrict our relationship. And I am astonished when I hear what you've just said from many American experts, that our epicenter of power is, is the Indo-Pacific. No, it is not. Your fo fortress is Europe. Never and, 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 and your fortress was always Europe. And why are you willing to allow someone to, to breach that fortress? Mm -hmm. You know, you have fought the longest Cold War in history and won mm -hmm. well, uh, 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 to, to maintain your uh, control on the order, on the governance mm -hmm. and the politics of that continent. And you are uh, today willing uh, to distract yourself from that essential project that you nurtured for 70 years. Mm -hmm. So I think Europe is the, your epicenter of power. And it is a battle for Europe that is unfolding in the Western Indian Ocean. How can you ignore that? Chinese, who is creating the second Suez Canal? The Chinese. Right? Who has the landing stations in Greece? The Chinese. Who is building the biggest ports in Morocco and other North African countries? The Chinese. Who are creating, sending 500 trains to Vienna from next month onwards? The Chinese. Who are sending 12,000 trains to Germany? The Chinese. So I, you must understand that it is a European project. That you have invested in, uh, you have invested blood and treasure in World War Two and thereafter, and it is that project that you need help today in in, in sustaining, and and it is there that you must, uh, in, where India will also be attracted. It is that project India is also attracted to, because we also seek the European markets, we also seek European uh, surpluses, we also seek uh, technology and and know-how from the Europeans, and we are uh, uh, for the longest time in our recent history a part of that European project as British India and, and as being linked to uh, Europe very closely. So I think that is also a geography we understand. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Walter's concern here, which I've heard him voice in the past, we may be talking about two separate issues. I think one is that you've been concerned that the concept of the Indo-Pacific specifically could be stretched beyond any meaningful definition. If the Indo-Pacific is everything, then it's nothing. And if we maybe can parse the two out and have the Indo-Pacific as one arena of competition, specifically where we – where maritime security is more important, where we have issues about the rules-based order and then separate that out from a broader global partnership with India and a broader global competition that's taking place in many arenas, I think there's a way to conceptually sort of bridge that divide. Next report. Yeah. And that's the next <laughs> Okay. Right. We'll talk about that. It does not be boxed in by the Indo-Pacific. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Hey, let me open it up to questions. Anyone? Yeah. Good morning. We have a microphone for you. So, my name is Adam Flitlick. I'm a program associate at the U.S.-China Education Trust. Um, so, uh, Samir, you've talked about a U.S.-India-Eurasia project. Could you tell us from an India 
from an Indian perspective, what would the ideal U.S.-India-Eurasian project look like? And given the problems that you talked about with the revenge of democracy, how likely are we to get there? <laughs> Democracies are difficult to, to uh, you know, their, their behavior is difficult to predict. But, uh, you know, I think we are going through our own resets, democratic resets, and I think we'll be fine. I think democracies have a good way of, of reinventing themselves and of, you know, finding an even keel. So I think what's happening in many parts is that some of the old elites and old incumbents are being dispossessed of their control over political fortunes in these democratic countries. And I believe in the next one or two cycles, you will find a, a degree of stability for us to do the long-term thinking. Um, so I think uh, uh, the political future in the near to midterm is is perhaps fine. Currently, we are going through this uh, 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 um, a crazy moment um, in in many parts of the world. Um, now, what is the proposition? I think the proposition is very simple. We have to do something that are that we used to laugh when our European cousins used to talk about it. Uh, normative frameworks and values. And I think that is what America and India, you know, both of us never really bought into that gibberish that came out of Europe. You know, we were real politic powers. We were pragmatic. We believed in, in hard power and economic influence. And we never really bought this idealistic, ethical uh, gospel of money that um, uh, flowed out of, uh, of Europeans. But I guess we have to perhaps reconsider that. I think the first thing that we can do as big democracies, one north, one south, one developed, one emerging, uh, you know, the diversity we bring, a demo, the, the democratic diversity that the two of us represent, we could easily put together a set of normative principles around infrastructure, around cybersecurity, around the digital economy, around development itself, around climate, around uh, maritime freedoms, around uh, outer space. And you could look at a plethora of sectors, 10, 12 sectors can be as the quad or as a bilateral. Put out. So India and U.S. are talking bilaterally on many of these issues. So can we come up with an India-U.S. position on the future of the, the cyberspace, on the future of the digital economy, on the future of the outer space, on the future of um, uh, fish, fish, you know, fishing and blue economy, on the etc., etc., etc. So one is the normative partnership that we can carve together, where we don't necessarily have to put our financial resources and 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 um, the, you know political capital, but where we are putting together a common vision and put and that has influence. And gradually buy, make other people buy into that idea. So you bring our, use our own networks of influence and bring 17, 20, 35, 40, 50 countries to begin to sign on to these charters of, 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 of future management of the world. So that's one idea. The second, of course, is that, uh, uh, put together, you know, India last year was a, an a aid provider. Over the last few years, India has been putting money out to other countries in Africa and in its neighborhood. India in the next 15 to 20 years is going to be as big as any other OECD country in terms of giving uh, global capital for other people's benefit. We are going to be the single largest source of new incremental capital in the global development landscape. We are going to put $100 billion out in the next 20 years, flowing out of India. How are we going to deploy that capital? Uh, by itself, it is not too much. But if we can team up with the Americans, with the Japanese, with the Europeans, with the DAC, then we can create a development landscape that is fair, open, inclusive, democratic. Otherwise, the world is being hardwired through Chinese development capital in a certain direction. So I think um, money flows with uh, ideals and, and ideology. And um, if we are to make sure that our essential objective of preserving a degree of liberalism that we all agree to, if that is the essential project we must be embarked on, then we must pull together capital that flows 
that allows that particular project to thrive. So the second is, can we align our development strategies, our infrastructure strategies, our investment strategies in many parts of the world where the only option for them either is a redundant World Bank or Chinese capital? And I think we must give people more options. So that's the second thing we can do together. And finally, of course, uh, uh, the, the, the Americans have uh, single-handedly maintained and preserved um, the, the global security order in many parts of the world. And it is fair for them to expect, and I think that's your point, Walter, it's fair for them to expect that we start underwriting checks uh, around that as well. So going forward, I would expect countries like Japan, India, and others to start pulling in resources, warships, you know, aircrafts, personnel, uh, and 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 other uh, softer elements of, around security to preserve that order. So I think the security is the third uh, important uh, element of what we, what we can do together. So a normative partnership, a financial and development partnership, and of course a hard security partnership. There are three clear uh, roadmaps for uh, a larger Eurasian or larger global um, agreement arrangement between uh, the world's two largest democracies. Other questions? Uh, let me ask Anthony first there, and then, and then we'll come to you. Anthony Kim with the Heritage Foundation. I know this event is about India-U.S. bilateral specifics, but you've been already doing this, but if I may go beyond that frame, when you talk about Indo-Pacific, do you sense, do you feel Japan is on the same page with you? Because I raised that question. I think Prime Minister Abe and his advisors, when they talk about, say, China in the context of Indo-Pacific, I hear a bit more inclusive tone there. They are not trying to, say, cut out China. Japan wants to do things with China in terms of infrastructure development, BNL. So I'm just curious about your perspective, Indian perspective. The second question is, as you know, you know Taiwan is now very big on new southbound policy. They're very big on you know, Southeast, Asia, Southeast Asia and then India in terms of cooperation and more things to do. Uh, how can we then... Uh, incorporate Taiwan more effectively into this whole discussion? Just those two questions. I know that that's an extremely relevant question, and uh, that, that's a question which is uh, I've heard in Japan, I've heard in Taiwan. Uh, and see, we began with the proposition that China cannot be ignored by anybody, neither Japan, nor Taiwan, nor India. It, it, it is fundamental to the architecture. And if you look at the relationships which are developing between all these countries that is outside China in, in that whole domain, you are seeing a coalition and uh, you're seeing a coalition of certain ideas. And these are whether it is uh, Taiwan's southbound policy, which uh, Japan is very much actively participating that across Southeast Asia. And India and Japan today now actually talking about the same thing which we discussed together about how you start moving this push westward. Today, Japan and India are talking about Africa. It, it, it is not by way of just containing China. My proposition right in the beginning was this is not about containing China. This is about working with China. This is about managing the rise of China. This is about integrating China into an architecture which we all believe in and we believe that we can work together. Taiwan, Korea, Japan, all are extremely important partners along with Australia and the U.S. in this enterprise. You know, the, the problem with that, I mean, I, I 
as I mentioned earlier, I accept all of that with regard to China and the need not only not to ignore it, but also recognizing that you can't exactly counter it. It's got to be a little bit more uh, sophistication in the way that you approach it. But when you're trying to incorporate them into the broader effort, the norm-setting effort or anything else, you need a willing partner. I mean, as, as Samir lined out, they have their own idea, and they have the money. So so you talk about uh, about somebody setting the global standards. We can all come through, and we can set the global standards. The guy with the money sets the standards. That's right. Okay, they don't care what 77 other countries are doing in the world or think about this. In fact, you won't get 77 countries to sign up to it if – if the Chinese don't want those particular standards, it would just be India and the U.S., right? That's not true. I, I, I think I think you are underestimating the the willingness of people to um, to attach themselves to leaderships. And I think India, U.S., and others are not providing that anymore. I, I don't agree. I, I mean, Chinese, uh, how many have they? How many have actually signed on to any of their projects? I I I disagree with that notion. But but the, the I, I think it can't even set the standards in. That's right. You. So so the French and the Germans can't even set the standards in Greece. So, and so provide that. No, leadership. I agree with you, Walter. So now this is the point. You know, uh, I remember two years ago, or two and a half years ago. I, I think it was July. When was the when was the uh, the the big ceremony in the court of Emperor Xi? When everyone reached, when George Hotz, you know, when the, the British sent their foreign minister and others to to signal their their obsequious to the king and and support the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. Was, this was Prime Minister May's visit, or uh, no? I think that was uh, that was Cameron's. Uh, no, this was I think George Hotson. What is the name of the foreign? George Osborne. Osborne. George Osborne yeah, yeah. came down. Yeah. So I remember at that time we were the sole voice of dissent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Single voice of dissent at that time. We were alone. In fact, we had to write uh, op eds. Only we read. No one even read our op-eds, <laughs> you know. But, but but two years down the line, you can see there is a far greater constituency of those who are questioning the conduct of the Belt and Road Initiative, the way it was designed, and the way it is being implemented. In fact, many of those who have uh, have signed on have received some of the goodies from the initiative itself are questioning some of them. So I I don't believe that uh, we should not make Chinese into a hundred feet gorilla. I think the Chinese are a rising power. Like all rising powers, like the U.S. in the 19th and 20th century, the Chinese have legitimate expectations that they will be able to influence and change the world to their convenience. Now, I think what we need to continuously do is engage and push back. That's it. That, that yes, you can't have a world without... I mean, I always ask myself this fundamental question, that can India be a $5 trillion economy in the next six, seven years without the economic engagement with China being at least 200 to $300 billion? And the answer is no. Can we be a $10 trillion economy without having a six, $700 billion engagement with China? And the answer is no. So it is impossible for the world to be prosperous and stable without an important and central role for China. The question is that are we going to allow them to set the terms of the engagement unilaterally or are we going to be able to put together an arrangement where the Chinese are fair and and, and inclusive in the new order that emerges due to the changing nature of of, uh, geography in the world. Anthony, let me try and address your direct question about Japan's view of the Indo-Pacific and the inclusive nature of it, which piggybacks some, some degree off what Samir was saying. This is an important fault line, and Samir was right. Uh, the India was the first country to really vocally oppose the Belt and Road to take any sort of pu- stand of public opposition um, anywhere. 
midway through last year, that began to change. After very high-level consultations between the U.S. and India, the Trump administration's position on the Belt and Road hardened significantly. So after years of taking a wait-and-see, relatively ambivalent, we're not going to comment, we're going to send low-level representation but not endorse it one way or another, uh, the Trump administration came out fairly quickly and forcefully uh, in criticizing the Belt and Road and specific tenets of it. Within two weeks of the first U.S. statement of criticism, Australia uh, began to signal it had its own reservations about Belt and Road. Within a month or two from that, you had officials from Germany, Britain, and France also voice their own uh, criticism of Belt and Road. Japan has been maybe the most remarkable member of this group because it has been the one that has been practically speaking, doing the most on the ground to provide alternatives to those countries seeking infrastructure investments but not wanting to go with China, but rhetorically has been maybe the softest on criticizing the Belt and Road and maintaining a position of openness that we we are open to collaborating on very specific infrastructure projects. But we maintain that a wholesale endorsement of the Belt and Road is contingent on the Belt and Road meeting these certain criteria. It must be open. It must be transparent. The debt financing must be responsible. Many of the things Belt and Road has been criticized for. So Japan is sort of withholding uh, any full-scale endorsement but is trying to do its best to maintain the semblance of opening to cooperation with China on select projects and selectively. Um, so it's it's an interesting position, an interesting approach. But the long-term trend has been, again, in this is just the last eight or nine months, we've gone from one country in the world willing to say anything publicly uh, critical of, of Belt and Road to a fairly significant coalition now that's not afraid to voice their concerns. And it's taking practical steps to to create new mechanisms to promote infrastructure in the region under a different set of principles than the Belt and Road is. Yeah, I um, I, I recognize all that, um, and I think it's important. Um, I guess maybe I'm just cynical. So at the end of the day, I'm just I'm just uh, convinced that uh, uh, you know convinced in the golden rule. He who has the goals sets the rules, and uh, and I think even when you look at some of this rhetoric, if you dig deeper in some of the all of these cases, you find segments in all of these countries that are eager for the money. The Brits are probably the most obvious example. The Brits are overwhelmingly interested in taking Chinese money, both in Britain and in third markets developing. And the French are in a similar place, and they have been some of the most vocal uh, in terms of concern. But at the same time, they're taking the money and they're trying to promote partnership and all the rest. So uh, I don't know. I guess we'll, I hope you're. I hope you all are right in your your optimism about. This. We got a question right back here. Yeah, my name is Jürgen Gottner, Embassy of Austria. So my question is most probably for Jeff. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit on this replacement of phrases from? Uh, Indo-Pacific, or from Asia-Pacific now to Indo-Pacific, from uh, pivot to Asia now to uh, a free and open Indo-Pacific. Mm -hmm. Is this uh, just a, a, a renaming by the Trump administration, or is there more behind, like, is this a different region, a larger region? Mm -hmm. Are there other issues concerned, or just a 
rephrasement. How much time do you have? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a fairly complex uh, story, but I'll do my best to give the abbreviated version of it. Um, in 2006, when Prime Minister Abe was first elected prime minister, he, in a series of speeches and uh, discussions, pr began promoting the idea of a confluence of the two seas, of a joining of the Indian and Pacific Oceans, of a connection between security developments uh, happening in, in one and increasingly impacting uh, the geopolitical environment in the other. And for Abe, there was also a normative aspect to this, that he wanted to promote these as zones of, of freedom and peace, uh, an area ruled by democracy and the rule of law. Uh, but he was uh, unseated uh, within a year and uh, would have to wait many years to make his comeback. And in the interim, uh, a more narrow version of his vision of the Indo-Pacific began to emerge and was first incorporated in the Australian government's uh, white paper, I believe, in 2013. I think Hillary Clinton first used the Indo-Pacific in a speech and in, 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 in an article in Foreign Affairs in 2011. So in the early 2010s, you began to see the Indo-Pacific concept gain popularity, but in a more narrow sense, it, as a way to replace the Asia-Pacific nomenclature, as a way to view the Indo and Indian and Pacific Oceans as connected, as one security space. Um, and this, again, maybe six or seven years now has gradually been building and replacing the Asia-Pacific. Let's stop looking at them as two separate theaters and instead look at them as one, you know, giant uh, uh, geostrategic sphere. The Trump administration uh, – let me take a step back. Toward the end of the second Obama administration, as this Indo-Pacific security concept was being adopted – you began to see growing emphasis on the importance of the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific and how it was increasingly coming under threat from a number of things but not least new challenges from China. And at the beginning of the Trump administration, they adopted this uh, terminology about the rules-based order, the importance of the rules-based order, the importance of the United States, India, and Japan rising to defend the rule of law, freedom of navigation, peaceful dispute settlement. The free and open Indo-Pacific, I see it as actually a, sort of a merging of the two. Uh, it is in some ways replaced the rules-based order as a normative vision for the Indo-Pacific super region, which is to say that we want a region that is guided by these rules and principles, the rules and principles that have really um, allowed an unprecedented era of peace and prosperity in the region. And we want these to endure amid major changes to the regional order and the, and the global order and major shifts in the power balance, that these are the core fundamental values that have allowed us to prosper. And we need to make sure that this Indo-Pacific remains free and open uh, at the same time. So it's been – there's to some degree been a merging of the concepts and a merging of the U.S. and Japanese visions. But I think that's probably the best way to try and deconstruct these uh, important changes in terminology. Of course, there's a great deal of continuity. Um, this is our um, last question here. Um, Sylvia Mishra at uh, working at the Nuclear Threat Initiative and 
formerly and very proudly worked uh, for the Observer Research Foundation. So it's great to see Sanjay and Samir here. Uh, my question is, is India concerned about uh, China's rapid uh, technological uh, developments and massive investments in artificial intelligence? Uh, there's a sophisticated uh, level of discussion in Washington, D.C. on applications and offensive applications of uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, where does India uh, find itself uh, in uh, the realm of AI? And um, where does it see the role that United States can play in advancing and um, uh, bolstering its uh, digital architecture? If I understand, India has a cyber uh, policy which, is, which was first formulated in 2013, and it uh, uh, requires... Uh, serious and urgent revision. So uh, I wish to know where this is headed. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, so uh, uh, Sylvia, I think that's an important question. And what are, what are we doing in terms of the development of uh, AI and uh, autonomous systems generally? And I think India is uh, doing what it does best. It's uh, creating conversations that can uh, uh, significantly uh, regulate the bads that flow out of any such new technology. On 18th of May, and this is a plug now, the Indian government and ORF is hosting a conference on managing AI in Geneva uh, on the uh, at the ITU uh, big meet that's happening. And um, we have uh, speakers from the US, Europe, Asia, China, India uh, participate. So I think what we can do as a much smaller economy, one-sixth the size of China, one-fifth the size of China, is to uh, use again the idea of norms and the idea of principles uh, in, in terms of management of the sector. Uh, having said that, uh, I think uh, one of my propositions was exactly this, that why do we need Europe? Why do we need the US? Why do we need a very robust partnership? Is exactly for this purpose. I do not believe that for the next 10 years, we will be able to do much by ourselves alone. And in that sense, a digital partnership, a fourth industrial revolution engagement with Europe and America is essential for India. Uh, we don't want to find ourselves in a situation that we did in the 20th century when much of the technology advancements escaped us because we were either sanctioned or we were on the wrong side. So uh, and so uh, I think going ahead, uh, it, it is again essential. Uh, and, and India gives, and, and let me also put the other flip side, unlike the last century, for the first time now, in the next five years, seven years, as we become five trillion and then move to ten, uh, we give the American invention and European innovation a market as well of significant size for dispersion and, and scaling up. So now it is actually a partnership where we bring something to the table. We bring our size to the table. We bring our capacities to the table that we have developed on our own indigenous, indigenously. So unlike the last century, there is something interesting even for the Europeans and Americans to consider when they see an Indian partnership. And it is happening, you know, when, I mean, on a, on a different note, on the digital economy side, for example, when WhatsApp, um, the, the largest uh, social media messaging service, decides to adopt UPI, a universal payment interface created by uh, Indian public sector, as the basis of WhatsApp money, then that tells you the power of that partnership. That here is a bottom of the pyramid invention, which costs less than uh, 10 pesa, which is uh, a fraction of a cent uh, to, con to, to, to settle payments with vis-a-vis -vis the MasterCard, Visa card, which all take dollars, which are all dollar-based services. This is a cent-based service. And suddenly you see the partnership coming in. And I think AI, which is based on big data, uh, which is based on a large number of people and preferences, 
is 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 something that uh, Europeans will find very useful and Americans will find very useful partnering with India. I don't think the G2G has too much scope to forge these partnerships. I think Silicon Valley and Bangalore are doing a good job themselves. Uh, what we really need to do is make sure that the regulatory ecosystem enables and catalyzes this and does not impede this. So we have to get out of the way in terms of governments and in terms of the policy community and we have to allow the businesses to create sensible partnerships which are in many ways organic. Just a quick intervention. Uh, just, just, just to add to Samir's point. Uh, what you said about China is extremely relevant. And uh, yes, China is investing a lot, is throwing a lot of money at it. Uh, but when we start talking of the fourth industrial revolution, the strength of the fourth industrial revolution is this extreme diversity of workforces. The extreme mixing together of, you know, completely different kinds of people, different communities which come together. And that has been the strength of the innovative ecosystem, which existed in Silicon Valley, which existed you know, in, in many other hubs of the world. That is where China has a certain disadvantage. Now, China also will need to reimagine itself, reimagine its own society if it needs to move further along this line. Countries like the U.S., countries like India have a natural advantage there. So let us see how this plays out. You know, the, the game is still on. Thank you. This was a terrific discussion this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists for the conversation.